Well, we are in a message series from uh, the New Testament book of Acts, which chronicles uh, actually the, the birth and the growth of early Christianity. And the title of today's message is Knowing God and Making Him Known from Acts chapter 17. And so if you have your Bible or that digital Bible, please be turning to Acts chapter 17. Um, come with me, please, to the city of Athens, Greece, the uh, uh, the gospel, uh, the church uh, started in Jerusalem, but it's, it's grown, it's expanded, and it's now in Europe. It's in Europe of all places, and now it's in Athens, the hub of intellectualism, uh, even with the uh, rise of Rome. Um, Athens is still an intellectual hub. Um, think of Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, Rice, and a number of other think tanks all together right there in Athens. Um, it was the land of philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. And here in Athens now, the Apostle Paul has arrived. Um, he's... Um, faced with some consternation, actually, at the outset, because he sees a city so in need of God. It's just full of idolatry. And by the way, let me just stop and ask you, what do you see when you see something in culture amiss? Are you the kind of person that just rants and raves and, 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 and gets, gets mad about it? Or are you the kind of person who prays over it? And says, as a believer, what might I do to bring some sort of redemption to this situation? How might I not just be hateful, how might I be helpful? So, the Apostle Paul is here in Athens, and um, he's invited to actually give a presentation at Mars Hill, at the Areopagus, uh, a leading cultural center, if you will. So, here we go, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. You know, in case they missed one, <laughs> they were full of gods and goddesses. And so in case they missed one, here is an idol um, to the unknown God. So he says, so you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He says, you're missing the good news of a knowable God. All right. On your outline, point number one is just knowing God. Knowing God. And we're, uh, I can say with great, with great certainty, you are going to hear a really good sermon today. And you know how I know this? I'm going to read it to you. All right, I'm going to read the Apostle Paul's sermon to you um, from Athens, uh, Greece. And let me put some words up here on the screen. You can go ahead and write those down. He's about to explain to you this unknown God, and here are some features of this unknown God. He's a creator, he's a commander, he's a sustainer, he's a redeemer. And he's judge. All right, so he starts his message, and 
He says this, verse 24. So the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. You look around, you'd see one temple after another. He says, do you actually think you can build a facility that could contain the one true living God? You can't build a temple big enough to contain the living God. And the living God, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, this God himself, he gives everyone life, breath, everything else. Where does your life come from? Answer, God. Where does your breath come from? Answer, God. In the past minute, you drew about 18 breaths of air. You've been counting? In the past hour, you breathed 1,080 times, which adds up to about 25,000 breaths in the past 24 hours. If you are 40 years old, you've gulped in more than 365 million breaths of air, and every single one was a gift from God. We ever pause to Thank God for the very air that we breathe. He gives you all things. You have life, you have breath, all things. It is a gift from this God who is bigger, better, more generous than you have ever dreamed. And he's not served by human hands as though he, as though he needs something. You know, I've said to you many times, God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. But he chooses to need me. He chooses to need you, and he graciously welcomes his redeemed children the privilege of serving him. Just like when my kids were little, and when my son Ryan was young, and he'd want to help me wash the car, I could actually get it done faster on my own. But he wanted to help, and it was fun to do it together. I, was, uh, I don't read a lot of poetry but there's a fantastic poem called The Lanyard by Billy Collins. And uh, you can even find this poem on, on the internet. And you ought to uh, look at it sometime and listen to Billy and actually watch Billy Collins read the poem. Not now. Don't look at it now. Okay? And it's a, I think it's a humorous poem that has a great point to it. He talks, it, it's called The Lanyard, and he talks about how that when he was a kid and he goes to summer camp and he weaves this cheap little lanyard, you know, a red plastic thread and a white plastic thread, and, and he weaves this cheap little lanyard at summer camp that a counselor helped him do, and he gave it to his mom. And he talks about thinking about his mom as a kid, and he said, you know, she gave me life she nursed me in so many sick rooms. She lifted spoons of medicine to my lips. She led me out into the airy light. She taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. She made thousands of meals. She said, here's clothing and an education. And I replied, and here's your lanyard. And she said, here's a breathing body and a beating heart and strong legs and bones. And I said... Here's your cheap summer camp lanyard. And he said, though, that as he uh, got older, he has to make, he finally made this admission. 
that he was as wrong as he could have been when, and I quote, I was sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make my mom and I even. Mom, let's call it, we're good. You know, you did all that. I gave you this cheap little summer camp lanyard. Hey, we're good. We're even, right? <laughs> Paul says, do you have an idea, any idea, how good and grand this God is? You can't repay him. There's no way you could ever repay him. We don't meet his needs. He meets ours. And then from one man, verse 26, this God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, he's not disengaged. He's not distant. He's actually involved. And no nation or race is superior because God made us all from one common ancestor. And why did God do all this? Verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He says, this God is accessible. This God cares. He's actually concerned about you. For in him we live, we move, and we have our very being. And some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. And therefore, since we are God's offspring, you know, by creation, all of us belong to God. By redemption, we can become his children. But since we're all God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like your little idols here, gold, silver, or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And let me just say, Never think that the one true living God who reveals himself in creation and Jesus and in the scriptures needs us to manage his image. We're made in God's image. We should not make him in ours. He reveals himself to us and we're called to follow and to worship. Can you imagine me walking into the Louvre with a palette of paint and a brush? And you say, well, Ronnie, why are you going into the Louvre? I'm about to improve the Mona Lisa. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk into these masterpieces, and I'm going to make them better. You don't touch up and improve a masterpiece. No, you go and you appreciate that masterpiece. And the living God is a masterpiece to be adored and worshiped and followed. And listen, this big God who's bigger than you thought, who's higher than you can imagine, he wants your fellowship. He wants a connection. He wants a relationship with you. Now, verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn and follow him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, that would be Jesus. And he has given, notice the next word, he's given proof. What's he given? He's given, say it with me, proof 
of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says the resurrection is proof of this big, grand, good, generous God to whom we are accountable. The resurrection is the proof because that's not how the world works. The world decays, the world dies, but the resurrection is completely contrary to how things work. And without the resurrection, we just sort of debate philosophies, don't we? Well, I think this. Well, I think that. But if indeed Jesus has been raised from the dead, Christianity's true. I may not like it. I may not agree with it. I may mock it and sneer at it. And if you're not yet a believer, I would say this. Have you really come to grips with and have you evaluated the evidence for the resurrection? Because it's there. Well, how do people react to this sermon? Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, mocked. You know, earlier in Acts 17, they called Paul a babbler, a wannabe intellectual, pseudo-intellectual. And so when they hear about the resurrection, some sneered. Others said, though, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. But some of the people actually became followers of Paul, and they believed. And among them was Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Okay. There's Paul's sermon about the greatness of God, the reaction to it. Let's think for just a moment though, about making God known and maybe drawing two or three observations from the way Paul interacted with his culture, okay? Here's the first observation I would make, that like Paul, we need to anticipate some collisions with our culture. There are going to be some collisions. You don't need to be shocked by that, and you don't need to be discouraged by that. You do know that over the last 30 to 35 years, we've gone from a Christian positive culture through a Christian neutral culture to actually now a Christian negative culture. If you tell someone you are a Bible-believing Christian, there are a lot of people who would think that you are what's wrong with the world. Do we really expect everyone to applaud the Christian message? The story of grace, but the story of repentance, Christian morality. Expect collision. Expect pushback. But don't just respond with hatred. And don't just respond with contempt. As believers ask, how can I maybe be helpful here? How can I be redemptive here? How can I as a believer function as a creative minority? And that leads to the second thing. Be willing to engage in discussions. Be willing to engage with, with, the, with the discussions both in a Christian community, both in here and out there, about faith. You know, even someone coming to the Christian faith 
they're not fully mature. They're going to have lots of questions. And we want to dialogue and help. But someone who's not yet come to faith, be willing to engage in discussions with them. Let me say that again. Engage in discussions like you can. Engage in discussions where you are. You know, sometimes in the Bible, for example, like Philip, who had just encountered Jesus, you know how he engaged in in discussions? He said, just come and see. Just come with me. Just come and see. And sometimes we engage with someone and say, just listen to this podcast. Read this book. Just watch watch this and and, and think it through. Um, Or maybe you you just give your own little personal testimony, like John chapter 9, where the guy said, I cannot answer all your questions. Here's what I know. I was blind. Now I see. But... (laughs) A lot of you, you're, you're, you're really smart. You're very articulate. You have access to a number of resources, and you could actually be like a Paul and engage with others respectfully but on a deeper level. And in our culture in which we live now, which is loaded with uh, postmodern thinking, which is the thinking that there's no ultimate truth, there's just your truth and my truth, to be able to engage our culture like that. And, um, you know, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that um, how someone responds to Jesus totally depends on you. (laughs) It's more about their openness to the Holy Spirit than it is your eloquence. But let's engage. You know, anticipate collisions. Engage discussions. And then thirdly, expect various reactions. Just like the Apostle Paul, some people mocked him. Listen, don't be offended if, uh, when unbelievers mock you. Uh, it's a, it, it, it goes with the territory. There will be others who will say, that's interesting, but let me think about it for a while. And then others... They'll believe. Their hearts will be opened. And because you were willing to engage, your words, your presence nurtured their soul, warmed their hearts, and the Holy Spirit had an opportunity to work. Now, before I tie a bow here, I want to just talk to you for a moment about the privilege it is that we have to know the living God And may I just quickly highlight five blessings that as a believer, as a Christian, we we treasure these blessings. First of all, those who know God, we have energy for God. And that's such a joy and a privilege. We see something that's amiss, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe we're able to bring ministry there. And like Jeremiah said, Serving the Lord is like a fire in my bones. It's, it's a joy. It's a privilege. Secondly, those who know God, we can have high thoughts of God. Why? Because we're privileged to have access to the Scriptures. As God has revealed His thoughts and nature to us. And we know He's no small God. He's bigger, grander, better, more generous than we can imagine. 
And those who know God, we can have great boldness for God. Why? We would rather offend the king than offend God. We know who we are. We know where we stand. We know where we're going. We live and breathe for an audience of one. And those who know God, we can rest in his care. He's a good, good father. And the Bible says so clearly, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. My friend, you will never ever be in a place where Christ's love cannot find you and nurture you. You need not fear the end of your story because Jesus writes the end of your story and your story has no end. You will never ever face anything that God's power and strength cannot see you through. Oh my, we rest in the care of God and those who know God, we can have great love for God's people. (laughs) Not always easy, but we can have great love for God's people. Why? Because we're taking the love of God to us and we're passing it along to another. So there is the look at the living God, better, deeper, grander, more generous than you can imagine. And the gospel in its simplicity is he sent his son Jesus for us. He died a particular kind of death for our sins. He was raised to life again, and that resurrection validates this story. And he offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who repent and trust and follow him.